Ah, oh, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Neugebauer, coming to you live to air here in suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where, very on brand for being this close to Lake Ontario, it was raining. Uh, in case you need to know, it is Thursday, September 24th, 2020. It's also the Thursday after the 16th Sunday after Pentecost, if you're counting those Sundays after Pentecost do keep going on and on. I am joined, as always, by the greatest droid in the galaxy, R2-D2, so you can... Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only help. Yeah, they might need help. And, uh, again, my trusty water bottle. Yum. Alright. <laughs> uh, and if I sound, I don't know, uh, like, a, more like a human being and less like a digital vocal process because I'm trying out a Shure SM58 setup for church, so that's fun. Hopefully, if it sounds better, if it sounds worse, please let me know. And also, as a special guest, I'm joined by Chewbacca. Chewbacca. That kind of worked. It was, it was kind of one of these push toy things that are hard to deal with. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to put you away. Um... So tonight we're we're finally getting in, getting into the Helen Azuka episode, as promised. Uh, looking at the leader of the art protest group, and that's very wonderful and timely. But first, we got the pull list, and boy, were there some great Star Wars comics this week. Probably one of the best weeks for Star Wars comics I can remember. Uh, we had two incredible books. Uh, I'll go right to it with Darth Vader number five and. Uh, I can see on the cover if you Google it, and I'm going to probably try and work that into uh, the, uh, the 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 art for, not for this episode, but for, for this podcast, yet another comic uh, showing amazing, almost a Pantocrator, if you're familiar with that, between Anakin and Vader. It's, uh, it's brilliant, and uh, very briefly... You know, just to whet your appetite for this. So I've, I've mentioned, I think, on the, the Thrawn Alliance's review and that episode that Darth Vader is the failed attempt to forget Anakin Skywalker. And what's amazing then is uh, with this arc, this run by, by Greg Pak, you know, once he encounters Luke and confronts Luke and Luke says, no, Anakin, or Vader starts to slip in his ability to forget and he's consciously looking out looking for information about what happened how did this kid get born <laughs> and 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 how did this kid grow up and who let him become uh, as as Alex Star Wars explains it you know, who let him become a weak jedi who could turn down the dark side uh, it's an amazing exploration in part because and this is a bit of a spoiler it's interesting whenever Vader starts to search for who Luke is, who Anakin is, he inevitably goes to Padme and what happened with her. And we got a bit of that, a reminder of that in, in the, uh, uh, the Dr. Afra audio play. But that was of course, part of the, uh, uh that, that Vader run front by Karen, Kieran Gillen, but those are some other sides, and, and you can go back to my episode from about a month ago where I delve into that. Um, 
but Greg Pak is really going for it. And uh, again, this failed attempt, and, and so very much setting up the return of that Jedi, Anakin Skywalker. Um, speaking of Luke, in, in the ongoing Star Wars comic number six by Charles Sewell, who is my favorite author in Star Wars right now, um, we, we similarly, we, we see Luke uh, trying to find a, a master to train him. The juicy debate on the nature of the Force and he encounters someone who's far more cynical and jaded and fearful. Um, there's the debate there. He encounters a High Republic temple. Some interesting Easter eggs in that. And, of course, he learns his own father's name for the first time in canon. Uh, so a lot of rich, wonderful things. Both of these arcs. Uh, the the first arc of the ongoing, or the, the both of these comic books, not just the issues, but the the comics themselves, will likely get their own full episodes soon, uh, because they're both, and especially the Vader run, getting to the heart of what, for Christ's sake, Anakin is really rooted in is, is this question of who is Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader, and what does that mean about balance to the Force, and. It's amazing to see these authors continue to make this the hot button question, and 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 I'm 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 just soaking it up because uh, again, come January, we're getting High Republic and uh, everything that entails about what the Force meant back then, what they thought about balance then, and different things. So, uh. You know, definitely a lot of things to check out uh, in comics. I recommend reading both those books. There's also there was also a uh, new Captain America. No, I wonder if that's week, this week. I keep trying to remember. You, no, it was a Captain America book. That's an excellent book too by Tanisi Coates. But um, I can get in on that another time. On to our main topic, and the you know the prophecy of protest, and. It, it was this was always very timely it's gotten even more timely this past week um, but it just so happened that I've gotten to the part in my reread or past now past the part in my reread but gotten to that part where Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are, are on the moon and they get captured by Helen Azuka's team and the first thing she asks is yeah I'd like to know why we're being framed um, <laughs> that's a uh, a fascinating question, and um, and I'll get into why that's so fascinating. But first, let's just all agree right now, come together, gather around, and agree that Helen Azuka is the real prophet here. I mean, she's an art protest leader, like a leader of an art protest group. So not only is she making political statements, she's using it, doing it through creativity and through energy. Um, and of course, there's also the the tension dynamic between them and the Black Guards group that is a more violent terrorist group that I think, I'm trying to remember, I think has ties to Darren. Um, and and when I get into the reread, that'll, to the end of the reread, that'll uh, come to bear. I'm trying to remember, it was over a year ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, art protest group making these very public statements about you know the role that Cherka has, the, the stranglehold that they have, uh, 
um, the way this new uh, the, the new governance treaty is going to basically hand over control the way they already have had so much control on Pajal. Uh, but not just that, she's very clear in her legal mind, legal understanding, interpretation of this new constitution that uh, the, the, the phrase of till, till the sun's set forever and ever, I forget what the phrase is, but um, the way that the, this legislature, this new legislature, this new parliament is empowered to uh, basically sign, to, to create and the idea is that at the very beginning, at the start, they're going to create these perpetual contracts with Cherka to allow them to continue their mining operations, exposing the way they've been able to control, Cherka's been able to control the uh, the judicial system so that even very small misdemeanors land people into slavery for life and their children for life. And... Uh, you know, and, and how the Republic just hasn't really gotten involved, how much they haven't really known, and exposing to the and how in exposing to the Jedi how on the surface, uh, what what did what do people in Coruscant know about Pajali custom and language, um, and, and taking that opportunity almost not they didn't create the crisis, but they definitely drew. Helen's group drew the attention of the Jedi um, to, to the situation. Now, the thing is, here's the interesting thing. I'm going to take a swig of water because my voice is getting hoary. R2. Now, the real thing, the real prophet, has got to be Claudia Gray. <laughs> um, yes, people, anyone who is aware of American society for the last 200 years, but really the last 50, 60, 70 years may have been able to predict this, but, or, or knew that this was the case, but who could have predicted that in the next year after this book came out, that the public consciousness would be so consumed by competing narratives around what protest is and what it does. Right. Uh, it, it's this fascinating thing where uh, in, on the, the Pajali court and Darren and Rail especially and all, all the, these higher up security guys, they just lump everyone together into this ominous opposition. And for them, all protest is terrorism because it takes, it says, you know, what is good for say I'm an upstanding citizen of Pajal I've never committed a crime I'm even maybe someone with access to the royal court things are going great this is the status quo and this is good for me and good for us then or, or at least in my view good for us and it upsets it right? the, the protest upsets that status quo it says there are problems with this. Either uh, you know, we're not going to allow this and you're going to suffer for continuing in this, or actually there are problems that people are suffering because the status quo is continuing. And so they lump in both the, the, these 
relatively benign art protests that you'll notice as you read along don't harm anyone. (laughs) They're actually completely harmless. Uh, There's one demonstration where they seeded the, the, the the atmosphere on the moon with this red thing and the moon looks red, but nobody's doesn't affect the atmosphere or anything. Um, the, the central bowl that was going to house the coronation or something that kind of dissolves into ash or whatever. Um, there were the, the balloons with the singers or in the middle of the singers and rise up, but no one in the, so there's, uh, I'll back up the, the, um, just one of the customs leading up to coronation where people go on these rafts and they, they start singing in honor of the new queen and the new monarch. And in the middle of it, these balloons come up through the water, displace the rafts a little bit and has this message, Cherka out or something like that. Um, but then the, the balloon just goes away and people are fine. And yet there are also, there's also, uh, you know, a serious a bombing in a in a Cherka facility in a in an office building or or a factory rather. Um, there, this is the <laughs> a really insidious one. Uh, uh, one of the reprogramming darts it is fired into the royal palace, and of course with Rael Everos, his history, his Padawan uh, Nimpiana who had been overtaken by these brain programming darts and, and rail had to kill her. And that's his deep, deep trauma. And here Fanry is his next apprentice in a lot of ways. And that is this attack on him. And the way those two groups are conflated really lines up, at least in the media narrative around the black lives matter protests and, um, yeah, generally the black lives, but all the 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 push for social change. Because what you hear is either Black Lives Matter were marching peacefully, or you hear, oh, we, the the destruction of property and lives, destruction of property and lives, and even the. Uh, the stat that came out, and I'll, I'll link the article in the description. The reality is that 93% of Black Lives Matter protests were were peaceful, that no one got hurt. Right? That's the fact and the reality. And even as I say that, I know people are going to say, well, what about that 7%? Doesn't that invalidate it? Um, among that 7%, how much did some buildings get? broken up but no no one actually got harmed maybe some wealthy people lost a lot of money a bit of money but no one got harmed how much of those protests and i think back to the g20 uh i forget when that was maybe 10 years ago here in toronto and all the the riots and whatnot we know that those were incited by the police themselves just so they could have an excuse to make arrests and delegitimate protests themselves so that's uh, <laughs> a very difficult, frustrating thing. And then we come to this last week, or the last yesterday, literally yesterday, or 
you know, two days ago, the Louisville, uh, Louisville police issue a state of, uh, martial law, state of emergency, knowing that the announcement of the ruling on Breonna Taylor's murderers was going to provoke rioting and protests. They knew it beforehand. <laughs> and this, this is, uh, sorry, I, I'm trying to find the right words for this. Public institutions are meant to serve the people. Public institutions are meant to ensure fairness and justice on the part of the population. There is, United States is a republic, a thing of the people. If you have a ruling coming out that you know is going to continue the protests that have been going on for the last few months, that if you you know this ruling is going to smack in the face of what ordinary folks have been calling for, simple accountability, simple justice for these armed thugs known as policemen who marched into Breonna Taylor's room, and yes, uh, her boyfriend pulled a gun, but then the police shot and murdered Breonna Taylor. And if you think that the ruling of on the, 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 the not the indictment, the ruling of, of the judge regarding these murderers, and it shouldn't find, it's not first degree premeditated murder, you know, and yes, there are some, so there is some, maybe some measure of police immunity but I'll get to that in a second. If you think the ruling is going to spark protests, then maybe you think it might not be the right decision. <laughs> maybe you think this ruling isn't actually going to serve the people. You know? Um, got a, a train going by. I'm trying to focus here. The only conviction was for the police accidentally shooting bullets into other rooms. It didn't hurt anybody. Right. But the, the actual, regarded regards to the actual murder of Breonna Taylor, the police have got on scot-free. And this gets to the question of, of police immunity. Now, I'm not a legal expert, but it's very clear to me that this police immunity is not serving the people. And if police continue to hide behind it in these communities, then they are not serving the people. And so that's, you know, that the thing about protest is, um, and the two narratives about protest is you, uh, you know, people think, oh, they're just an angry mob that's going to go out and serving the people and that mob, quote unquote, isn't always going to get it right. It could be an angry, violent mob. But here's the thing. You look back into history and a lot of times angry, violent mobs are spurred on by institutions and authorities, right? You look at the 
you know, a lot of the anti-Semitic riots that went on, and and I have to admit this as as a member of you know leadership in a Christian church, and I've has preached, and I have obviously not going to preach mobs and riots, but I have taken that pulpit, right? They've been spurred on in Good Friday pogroms, right? Uh, when a people rise up and demand accountability on the part of public institutions, you know, we have to focus on that 93% of people who do so peacefully. Well, that that number actually be overwhelming in terms of people who meet both the means and the ends. Okay, take a little water. Now, I have an interesting perspective on all that because I mentioned the anti-Semitic riots in, in Europe and, um, you know, uh, yeah, so that's the funny thing. I'm on both sides of of this, right? I've been in the pulpit, but my grandfather, as a Jew, survived Auschwitz, right? faced this systemic genocide of our people. And the th- and one of the sparks to that, one of the first times where it was clear that this systemic uh, systemic discrimination that that the the Aryan majority was going to get away with this was Kristallnacht. And here's what I think in terms of and here's just an example of the competing narratives. So I mention all the time that I am, you know, here in suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and uh, you know I'm have a very comfortable, well-off existence. My parents have had a relatively comfortable, materially at least, well-off existence. Everyone struggles. Everyone has difficulty. Um, for the first time in how many decades, first time in centuries, Jews in the West have been relatively okay. And so I think a lot of people who look at a large group that happens to involve 7% of which may be shattering some glass, for those of us in our wealthy, comfortable suburban lifestyle who know nothing of police brutality who know nothing of the the lack of accountability on the part of police who can walk in and murder a woman in her sleep you know all we know of police or what I you know what happened a few weeks ago I got pulled over because I rolled through a stop and God, fine hundred dollars. You know, okay, I'll pay that fine. You can make an argument. It maybe makes driving safer because I'm sure to stop fully at a at a stop sign. But that's all we know about policing, and that's all we know about injustice. And it's not an injustice. Um, so here we are. What we do know, also, I can go downtown, and I can go shop in safety. Go to Eaton Center. Uh, go around shopping and safety and that's my experience 
And that's the experience of a lot of people. And that's a fair. It's not, not taking anything away from that. But for a lot of folks, you know, that's not their experience of police. And, or, or let me back up. So I can go downtown. I can see these wonderful things, enjoy these spaces. Because I have a relatively wealthy middle-class suburban existence. Uh, to see those spaces physically shattered, that could be challenging. It could be jarring. You could interpret that as violence against what you're used to. Because again, for the first time in centuries, Jews are okay. Like I have not in my entire life faced any anti-Semitic attack. Now that happens. It's not that it doesn't happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen here in North America. Right. But I've never experienced it. And I don't really expect to experience it. Not compared to, certainly not compared to what my grandfather experienced on a daily basis. Not compared to what black and, and Hispanic and LGBTQ folks experience and, and Asian folks and, and people who aren't part of this white majority. Okay. So some people, sure, they see Kristallnacht. What protest can do, what I hope compassion can do, what protest can do in raising compassion is for is for me to not see it as Kristallnacht, but see it as a protest against uh, the Gestapo, saying we will not have a Gestapo here in North America. And you know, I've said this before, the United States is coming, you know, ICE especially, for example, and a lot of the way these police mobs have acted come very close, if not are already there. <laughs> and um, you know, simple accountability. And again, back up. Sorry, I'm doing different things here. And thing about Kristallnacht is that was spurred on by the German government. That was by the Nazi regime. That was something that says, go out and we are going to turn a blind eye when this Jewish business gets burned. We're going to turn a blind eye when the synagogue gets destroyed. Go nuts, right? Whereas this protest, Black Lives Matter protest, is George Floyd had a police officer on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, or however long it was. Again, Breonna Taylor was asleep in her bed and got shot. Right? We want accountability for that the same kind of accountability that say if someone did that to me, a policeman would have police person would have that kind of accountability. Right. Even when I was pulled over, the guy made a point of saying I'm being recorded, whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and he was very polite and I was very polite and deferential and like, don't ruffle any feathers. Right. That's, that's the limit to what policing can be, should be, and it isn't uh, in so many communities, in so many contexts. Um, 
And so, you know, 93%, let's own that number. Let's name that and say, yeah, people have really risen up, just like Helen Azuka, and named the injustices in our society right now. And the ones, you know, that named the fact that America specifically, but in a lot of places, I mean, we can have Indigenous Lives Matter protests here in Canada, Black Lives Matter protests here in Canada, haven't lived up to the promise of what a thing of the people ought to be. You know, that's prophecy. That is Nathan and Elijah going in front of these kings, self-anointed or God-anointed even. And especially that's the point, God-anointed kings who themselves turned away from God's will in being for the people. A final prophetic comment comes uh, not from Helen Azuka, but from Rahara Wick, who, of course, was herself a former slave. And this is the, the deeply prophetic question. And a former slave, she's talking to Qui-Gon about, uh, about slavery. This is page 194 of the hardcover um, you know, and, and you know, she asks Qui-Gon about you know, why doesn't the Republic well, let's say, I'll just read it here bottom of 193 but the Republic doesn't force Cherka to stop using slavery even in Republic space they go, don't aggressively police trafficking on their borders why not, right, the Jedi Republic. Here's a reason for policing, right? (laughs) Here's Qui-Gon's response. He sat for a few long minutes considering this. To be sure he was answering honestly. The Jedi don't make the Republic do anything. We serve the Republic, not the other way around. But as to why the Republic doesn't act, I have no good answer for you. And here's the, the crux of it. Rahara wiped her cheek roughly with the back of one hand. If the Republic can't do something as decent as base and basic as attack slavery, why do we have a Republic to begin with? Qui-Gon repeated, I have no good answer. See, prophecy looks at the evils of a society, the indulgences of a society. And it says the way we've organized as a society into states, right, into public institutions, and that's a very modern Western way of doing it, but it's where we're at right now. So why are we doing this in the first place? Why are we calling it a republic, a thing of the people, a democracy, rule of the people. If there's still slavery still going on, if there's mass incarceration that uh, leads to forced labor, that's a freaky thing that is very intimately connected to what Cherka is doing, right? You know, if, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, 
posted about how her, I think her cousin, in the wave of mass incarceration, was never given the opportunities to to learn and to grow and to escape uh, or, or to, to grow out of it and develop, you know, to, well, education and develop a, a life and a career. And his, he was sucked into drugs and crime. And, of course, that fed, that feeds the mass incarceration machine, which then leads to, uh, you know, them providing cheap labor for construction or whatever it is that they make, right? If it isn't a thing of the peop- of all people, then it isn't a thing of the people. And prophecy sees this and says... Are you really who you claim to be? Right? Or are you just uh, an instrument for Cherka? Are you just an instrument for whatever private corporation or, or segment of the population that is really dominating? Right? 93% overwhelmingly did this peacefully. And the other 7% might have been riled up, might have been accidents. Sure, some folks, even the other day, shot the police officer, a police officer, and that, that police, police person is going to be fine. Doesn't excuse it. But what is unacceptable is the fact that the person who shot that police officer who's going to be fine is going to be convicted way harsher convicted at all while the murder of Breonna Taylor goes goes free protest brings us face to face with these realities protest brings us face to face with these realities not just so we can sit there and wallow in everything's going to hell forget it give up that's not the point Right. The point of Black Lives Matter isn't uh, other lives don't matter, isn't only Black Lives Matter. It's a society that seeks the welfare of all. Is the society that seeks well? That's tautology. The society that seeks the welfare of its most vulnerable is one that seeks the welfare of all. And sooner or later, en masse, especially with the the leisure of this pandemic that a lot of us have finally been able to experience. I mean, not, not, not me so much, but others. Having the time and energy to mobilize. Alan Azuka took that time anyway. Took her creativity anyway. And you know, we'll see how far. She's certainly influenced Qui-Gon. <laughs> um, influenced Obi-Wan to some extent. Although, again, you see Qui-Gon going for it. And Obi-Wan bending, but not breaking, but not even bending. Because he's too young. Um, well, I, I we'll see what happens later, but. Um, let's name this not as 
quarreling and dissension. And that's another thing, right? Um, this Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on Exodus 17. Uh, and the people quarreled with Moses and with God. And that could so easily be taken as a weapon against protest. And it is not. <laughs> right? It's a call to soften our hearts. This is where I'm going with this, with Psalm 95. A call to soften our hearts with God, with those God has given us in leadership. Not that, you know, questions are wrong. To soften our hearts with each other so that we are asking the right questions of our leaders and ensuring their accountability. 93%, keep on repeating this, I have asked the right questions over this time. 93%. Okay. Asking the right questions of a society and of its leadership is what prophecy is all about. Naming, exposing in incredibly creative ways the way Cherka, the way the mass incar- incarceration prison, uh, prison industrial complex has such an entrenched hold on our society. Things I've just really come to consciousness myself so much in the last year, even though I studied political science, right? At a very wealthy middle-class university. (laughs) Um, Prophecy is all about asking the right questions and then pointing to a brighter future. But Hanazuka, and for where I'm going to leave this series off tonight, next week, (laughs) we're going to literally talk about the light literal light and as light of course as the metaphor and the image and the allegory um, you know, in, in Qui-Gon's turn to, to literalism in, in prophecy and dreams in uh, that amazing quote at the, the back of the book about turning to the light because it's the light the vision of the future that is hopeful that is how, why Qui-Gon you know, lands on Tatooine and encounters this nine-year-old kid and believes in the prophecy of the Chosen One who will bring balance to the Force. But in order to pave the way, there needs to be a confrontation with the powers that, of course, Jesus himself does. So that's been... Episode 62 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. Um, Again, I hope I was articulating clear enough in what I was trying to say. Uh, Man, Claudia Gray, really looking forward to what she has to say about the Jedi of the High Republic era. Um, Because she's really gotten right about the the Jedi and society just at the, the, the twilight of the Republic. In this era, in this book. So again, this has been episode 62 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. If you would like to uh, leave a, give me a follow and leave a comment on Twitter at NEUG485. 
Give me a follow and leave a comment on Instagram at MNUG1138. Or you'll see some, some quotes from this book and elsewhere. <laughs> um, and, and stay courageous. Let your heart not be troubled. Thanks for listening. And may the force be with you always. Always.